Jerkagram of LA will be there. And Love Moon. Same place, different time. 9 p.m., 7 bucks. Brought to you by Subliminal SF. For complete listings and more information, visit subliminalsf.com or check them out on Facebook at facebook.com slash subliminalsf. is a proud sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. We appreciate how comedians are, well, they're poor, and they need a delicious and inexpensive alternative to craft beer. Now, that's why every Pabst Blue Ribbon is affordable and accessible to even the dirtiest of dickbag comedians, allowing them to be in public at a bar interacting with people they probably shouldn't, like women. So go buy your favorite comedian a PBR. They need the encouragement that someone somewhere cares what they have to say. Paps Blue Ribbon, keeping comedians funny with classically delicious flavor since 1844. Which is crazy because it was America's best in 1893. <laughs> Tony Sparks home. Let the brainwash the mighty brainwash. Oh, yes, we got them jokes. Seven nights a week. Sponsored Sunlight out of UK. Primitive man of Denver and cult leader Salt Lake City. 8 p.m. $10. July 15th. Brought to you by Subliminal SF. For complete listings and more information, visit subliminalsf.com or check them out on Facebook. See you then. Asiento, this locally owned Mission Neighborhood Bar and Restaurant, is excited to be a sponsor for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016. We hope you'll join us any night at the Asiento. Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival for happy hour pricing all night long. Just mention that you were an audience member for happy hour pricing March 2nd through 6th at Asiento, 2730 21st Street at Bryant Street, just a half a block away from Mutiny Radio. 
Asiento has a warm, friendly neighborhood vibe that's perfect for an after-work drink or for a night out. Featuring a comfortable bar and extensive tapas menu, this is the perfect place for groups that want to get together for drinks and food without the restaurant uh, commitment. Siento. Don't be surprised if you suddenly find yourself at Asiento for the entire night. It feels just like home with bartender service. Asiento. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs>
children of Earth. Kids, moms, dads, aunts, uncles, grandmothers, grandfathers, we are all children of Earth. The Earth is our mother. Mother Earth is for all of us. You're listening to Women's Magazine. all be kind to our mother take care of her and love her mother earth has many children all living things are her children the plants animals birds fish insects reptiles and the people to take care of the living natural world. The mother takes care of us, provides all we have. If we do not care for her, she cannot care for us. The human beings have thoughts and can act on these thoughts. How the human affects all the living things. Human beings are caretakers to take care of Mother Earth, protect her with good thought. We are all children of Earth. Welcome. I'm Global Val. You're listening to Women's Magazine on MutinyRadio.fm. And I'm really excited because it's the month of March. And of course, that means it's Women's History Month or Herstory Month, however you'd like to put it. Um, We just had International Women's Day a couple days back on the 8th. And so we're going to dedicate March. And of course, well, this is Women's Magazine. So it's every Friday dedicated to um, women and uh, the the issues that affect all of us. Um, but today, I'm really, really happy to welcome three guests into the Mutiny Radio Studios, uh, three women who are running for supervisor, the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. We've got uh, Sandra Lee Fewer, who's running for District 1. Um, we've got Kimberly Alvarenga running for District 11, and Hillary Ronan running for District 9. And District 9, of course, is here in the Mission in Bernal Heights, and we're here at Mutiny Radio in the Mission of San Francisco. Uh, as I said, I'm Global Val, and I, I I deeply care about the San Francisco. I'm a fifth-generation San Franciscan. I know we have a couple other natives here in the room, and, long, and of course, um, everyone in this room I, I know is dedicated to uh, looking out for this fine, amazing city of ours um, and addressing some of the really important issues that... Um, we obviously all, all care about and, uh, the, the present and the future of San Francisco. So thank you so much for being my guests. 
welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so maybe we'll start with uh, Sandra, since sure. since you're, we're in District One. We'll start with you first. That's great. <laughs> um, so. I, I know that you've been a long-time resident of the Richmond District. Yes, I have. So I lived in the Richmond District for 50 years. My husband also was raised in the Richmond District. So together, um, we went to the same schools in the Richmond District. We went to all the public schools there. We played in its parks. You know, Golden Gate Park was our background, our playground, quite frankly. We skated on the streets, we made lifelong friends there, and we raised our three children there, Sarah, Colleen, and Rory. And I know that for the past several years you've been a member of the Board of Education, which is an elected position. Um, this is your second term, I believe. Yes, it is. And I ran first in 2008, and then I ran again in 2012. And and you were also elected um, to be the president of the board back in 2014, was it? That's correct. Was that a one-year term? That is a one-year term. Okay. Yes. Um, so how did you get involved with, uh, initially get involved in the political side of San Francisco? Yeah, that's a really good question, quite frankly, because no one in my family had ever run for office, and I never saw myself as running for any office at all. I was a stay-at-home mom for many years. Um, I was a PTA president for 12 terms, and I worked for Coleman Advocates for Children and Youth, and I was the director of parent organizing. We worked on edgy and affordable family housing. And one day, and Tanya Lee, who was our executive director, showed us a model created by the Annenberg Institute on how we make the greatest social change. And it showed an inside and an outside strategy. And so Coleman, we did a whole assessment of on the school board, like who's who's on our side. And we had a whole bunch of measures. And um, what we discovered was we couldn't depend on someone 100% of the time. And we thought we had to grow our own. And at that point, we were, we were just about to launch an education equity platform. And so we kind of looked around the room and said, hey, I wonder who could run that has been Coleman sort of grown and trained. And um, the, pretty much the finger was pointed at me. One, you know, I, I am older and I had a husband that was supporting me. And I also um, had a lot of factors, I think, that made me politically viable. A school board race is a citywide race. And so you have to be able to attract a, a large voter sort of um, following. And the fact, I think, that I'm Chinese-American, I am a fourth-generation Chinese-American San Franciscan. The fact that I think I was a PTA president for many years. But then I also did a lot of things around equity and education equity and racial equity that it, I think I could cross both sides. And I won in 2008. In 2012, I was the number one vote-getter in the city um, for the school board race and also in my district. So sometimes I ask myself around this supervisor's race, in fact, I ask myself constantly, how did I get here? Like, I, how did I get here? I was a cocktail waitress at the Fairmont Hotel. I was a retail clerk at Macy's Fitting Bras. I gave out candy samples. I, I kind of don't really know how I got here, but here I am, and I declared about maybe six weeks ago or maybe two months now, and we're on it. And we've been going really strong ever since I made the decision to run. So um, I'm glad I did, though, especially because I am running with such amazing women, and it is so exciting to think that I could be working on the board with them because I admire both these women very much. That is very exciting. Thank you, Sandra. Um, and uh, just a quick question about that before we introduce more in depth uh, the other two uh, women who are here with us today. How is running for supervisor proving to be different from running from the Board of Education? Well, I think it is really different. I think there is much more attention on it, and you're scrutinized much more. The competition, the money you have to raise is incredible, especially if you're running against somebody who, um, you know, as a profession, was a is a political fundraiser. And so I think at the school board race, you have to raise about $55,000 to be viable, maybe about 60000 more. That was a stretch for me. But in this race, I think all of us are looking, especially all three of us, we come from bases that are actually moderate and low income. We're, we don't have a lot of corporate connections. We, The people that I think that we have worked with are moderate wage earners or low wage earners. And that has been the bulk of our careers, I think. And so we were just talking about this today, Kimberly and I, that it is a challenge to raise that money. But 
having said that, I don't think we need to raise as much money because we will have a better field. I think most of us have worked as organizers before. We know how to organize. We know that money doesn't buy everything and that it is about the will of the people, I think, in this race. Fantastic. And then I certainly um, support that notion, too, that we can you know, move forward and actually have a, a functioning political system without having to have uh, you know, X amount of dollars to prove that you, know, you can raise money to, to run a campaign. Um, so let, let, let's actually, we've got Hillary Ronan here, who's running for District 9, and, and Kim Alvarenga running for District 11. Maybe um, before we get into more in-depth introductions, talk a little bit about coming from your own districts and how, how, how it is to actually run for supervisor and, and what kind of challenges that's posing for you. Um, Hillary, you want to start with sure. that? And then I think what's interesting about the three of us as candidates is we all share um, the same, you know, we're all asking ourselves the same question, how did we get here? Because I don't think any of us plan to become politicians. None of us plan to run for office. We landed there because we care uh, about our districts and about the city and, and sort of our, our work paths led us to this point. Um, I uh, was not born in San Francisco. I was born in Los Angeles and moved to the Bay Area in 2003 uh, to attend law school at UC Berkeley. And my first job out of law school was in the mission at La Raza Centro Legal. And I worked there for six and a half years as an attorney and organizer with Latino immigrant workers. Um, and it was through that job that I wrote the first version of the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, which Kimberly, um, at the time, was the uh, district director for assembly member Tom Amiano and actually was responsible for getting it passed through the legislature. Um, but um, I, uh, with, with domestic workers, helped write that that first version and that process of writing laws that with community that would actually make real impact in the community's life was such an incredible experience um, that when there was an opening for a legislative aid in Supervisor Campos's office, um, I ran for that, or ran for that. It felt like it because there were so many people applying at the time. <laughs> I applied for that that seat, that seat, that position, and 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 um, he asked me to work for him. And so for the past six years, I have been working in the District Nine office as a legislative aide. But even during that entire time as a legislative aide, I never thought that I would run run for office. It was about the issues. It was about the community. It was about uh, writing and passing laws and, and making sure that our $9 billion budget was equitably distributed to, to all communities in San Francisco. And it really wasn't until um, we reached the level of crisis that we're currently in um, where we're, we're losing the best part of our city, which is the people. Unless you're super wealthy, you can't move into San Francisco today, um, that I decided to step up and, and run for office. Um, and uh, it's been a tremendous experience. I, you know, I, 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 and the right person for this job um, because I've worked in this district for 13 years, both in the Mission and the Portland and Bertle Heights, um, and I know this community inside and out. Uh, I'm in it for all of the right reasons and intentions, which is to serve this community and lift up the residents, workers, and businesses in District 9, uh, just like I know Kimberly Alvarenga and Sandra Lee Fewer are, are in it for those same reasons. And in, in just to, to bring it into the, the present day right now, I know um, uh, Supervisor Campos has called for a state of emergency to be declared for the homelessness crisis. What's your take on that, um, and how, are you, how, is that, how is your office or, or Campos's office working towards that right now? Sure. You know, I, I want to be clear. I, I believe that we're in the crisis that we're in because this mayor and this mayoral administration have, has failed us. Uh, this mayor cares more about corporate interests and developers than he does about the people of San Francisco and the residents of San Francisco. And, uh, you know, the way that he has been dealing with the homeless crisis, um, the fact that he swept homeless people off the street in the Embarcadero uh, to make room for people to party around the Super Bowl, uh, 
really created a crisis in District 9. Um, we had uh, a tent city of more than 200 people on Division Street, um, other tent cities um, all uh, along under the freeways on Cesar Chavez Street, under the 101 freeway. Um, and uh, the, the, ish, the, the situation has gotten to crisis levels, and there just isn't a response that is meeting um, the devastating effect that this crisis is on having most importantly on homeless people who are living in tents on our streets, but then also of residents who have been asked to sh shoulder the burden of our affordability crisis in the city. Um, it's not acceptable that our residents are walking over human waste, uh, you know, when they open their door in the in, in the morning. It's not acceptable that our residents um, who don't have the training are dealing with people in severe mental health crisis on our streets. Um, this is a, a problem for all of us. And um, uh, Supervisor Campos decided that enough is enough. We need to raise the level of urgency. We need to use new tools to start to solve this crisis. And, and we, don't, we can't wait any longer. Um, so by declaring a state of emergency, it does a, a number of things. Um, first, it, uh, it kind of cuts the red tape so that it will be much easier and faster to build new navigation centers on city-owned land. Um, and, and in a few weeks, uh, he, and, and you know, I'm working on this uh, as a legislative aide in his office, um, is going to put forward an ordinance um, requiring the mayor to open six new navigation centers throughout San Francisco, uh, uh, four of which need to be done in the next uh, three months, and then, um, and then you know, the rest uh, by a year. Uh, these navigation centers uh, is a model that's working. We opened the first navigation center in the mission, and what makes these centers different and unique from traditional shelters is um, that people are allowed to bring their opposite sex partner and stay in the shelter together. They're open 24 hours a day. People can bring their pets and their belongings. Um, and then on site, there are social workers and counselors that help homeless people sign up for public benefits which is really incredibly difficult when you don't have an address or all of your paperwork. Um, once people get on public benefits, it's much easier to transition into per more permanent housing or an SRO hotel. You know, we see it as sort of a housing ladder to a permanent uh, affordable housing. Um, this model is working. And uh, even though we've acknowledged that it's working, you know, and the mayor acknowledged it was working seven months ago and, you know, had a press release announcing he's going to open new centers, uh, when we had a hearing last week or a couple weeks ago at the board, um, his homeless director said that they don't have plans to open an another uh, navigation center for, for a half a year. And so uh, we felt that even though it's the mayor's responsibility to run the departments that, that, that deal with opening navigation centers, that the work isn't being done and it's not being done fast enough. And so the board is going to step in, declare the state of emergency, and pass the law as mandate, mandating action. Well, thank, thank you for uh, reporting from City Hall on that one, uh, Hillary Ronan. Um, it is something that I think everybody in the city is concerned with, um, whatever angle they may be looking at it from. And I want to I transition over to Kim Alvarenga. Welcome. Thank you for thank coming today. Thank you so today. much for, for having me. It's just inspiring to, to be here sitting with uh, Hillary Ronan, Ronan and uh, Sandra Fewer, and it's a privilege. You know, I, I, uh, I'm running for supervisor as they said, you know, because I care deeply about the city. Uh, my parents met in the mission a couple of blocks over uh, in the early 1960s. My mom was a waitress at El Farolito restaurant, and my dad worked for Sunset Scavenger. Uh, ella era salvadoreña, and he a uh, mexicano. And uh, I grew up, I went to San Francisco schools, went to a called Hawthorne, Visitation Valley Middle School, and Woodrow Wilson High School. And, um, I care deeply, you know, I think that we need to make sure that um, communities that are underrepresented have a voice at the table. Um, and those that have experienced struggle, you know, my mom raised me as a domestic worker herself. 
you know, when I was about eight, we had to move to Holly Court's housing projects in Bernal Heights and know what it's like to struggle and know what it's like to try to make ends meet. Um, I've been working in the community uh, with my sisters here for uh, many years. I, for 20 years, I worked on family issues, on economic security issues. Uh, I worked for legal aid for a number of years doing welfare work, food stamps. You know, when, I, when my mom struggled, we had to rely on food stamps. Um, to make ends meet, and um, you know, in 2007, I I had the privilege of helping support a friend who ran for supervisor. Uh, he and I were friends. His name is David Campos. He was formerly undocumented, and uh, that was my introduction into politics. Usually, it was like working from the outside in, uh, building uh, power with community, and in. Um, you know, worked on his campaign and uh, able to get him elected. And in 2008, uh, Tom Mamiano asked me to be his district director. And I was able to work on so many issues, um, defending uh, universal health care in San Francisco, uh, the fight to save City College uh, with a lot of the folks in City College. I, I wouldn't be where I'm at today if it wasn't for City College um, and all the struggles that I've been through. And um, passing legislation like Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights, um, very close to my heart because of my mom's struggle. My mom raised me on $3.50 an hour as a domestic worker taking care of other people's kids. And so uh, with the help of Hillary and uh, uh, all the other work that had been done beforehand, uh, we were able to pass that. Uh, worked on the Trust Act to defend immigrant folks from being deported just because of the shade of color that they are. And um, I'm working uh, with SEIU now. You know, we're working on uh, making sure that we pass minimum wage, $15 an hour, and six paid uh, sick days uh, for the state of California. Um, and that's at the state level. Uh, but we're in critical times right now. And I think it's time for us to like put out a vision for what we want our communities to, to see, uh, not be on the defensive, but be proactive on the offensive, and a vision for what San Francisco is for, for everybody that works here. And you know, in my district, you know, District 11, it's the heart of the working class folks in this district. You know, we have labor households, density, you know, families, grandparents, elders, you know, parents and children trying to survive, working two, three jobs to, to make it every single day, and they're paying their fair share, um, but they don't see the equity. They don't see anything coming back to them, um, and, and they deserve to have that, and I think that uh, I'm ready and willing to be that champion and make sure that they do. And, and along those lines, I mean, I, 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 you know, it's coming from kind of all corners of the city where you have, you know, multiple generations or, 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 or even, you know, individuals, but yeah, struggling to try to see a future in San Francisco, you know, for different generations, all of you have children. So I imagine that that's a big, uh, personal, you know, um, motivator for, for, making sure that the city is a place where children can grow up and have a future and 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 have uh, you know pros you know be be prosperous enough to be able to do something which seems so simple which is to live and work in your own city and be part of that community so let's get into a little bit more of how how can we do it what are some of the plans or ideas that all of you have that you'd like to take um, as uh, being if you're elected onto the board of supervisors well, I think, you know, in my district out in the Richmond is that we, um, you know, it's very much like District 11, I think. It's very working class that we have people who have been out there for a very long time. I mean, I've been out there 50 years, but quite frankly, I have many friends who have lived there for 30 years, longtime renters. And people out there in my district, I think they're terrified. They're terrified about the housing. They're worried they're going to be displaced because they know if they lose their housing, they will not be able to come back to San Francisco or, re or remain in San Francisco, which now, you know, is their home. And so I think in San Francisco, we haven't really explored community land trust enough. I would, in my district, there are many pieces of property, I think, that could be under community land trust that would give them permanent stability in their homes. 
Yes, equity is capped, but I think what our families are really concerned about is being able to plan, to be able to plan for their families and the future of their families. In a community land trust, which I think in the mission, they've just acquired three pieces of property. I think it's a really good example of a mechanism. It is not the answer completely, but I think it's part of the answer to making places permanently affordable. All right. Thank you. Anyone else you want to like to address sure, sure. your um, ideas for uh, how how we create a and then the, the visions that, that uh, Kim was mentioning. How do we do it? Yeah, um, I see no other way than building thousands and thousands of units of below market rate housing. Um, so one of my pledges, if I'm elected supervisor, is that I'm going to build 5,000 units of below market rate housing in District 9 in 10 years. And I very deliberately put a number out there, and it's an ambitious number, because I, I want to hold myself accountable to a metric and to a, uh, to a goal. Um, it's not going to be easy, but it is absolutely possible. Uh, over the last year, we've fought together with community um, and have currently 480 new units of affordable housing that are going to be built in the mission in the next couple years. And we are in negotiations right now for hundreds of more units that are on the way. Um, every single day, uh, I am part of meetings with developers and with um, uh, different people in City Hall to identify and obtain plots of land that we can acquire and build affordable housing. Um, and it's really going to be a question of, do we have a will uh, to make this the priority right now for San Francisco? Because if we don't, then it's going to be a city exclusively for the ultra wealthy, and we'll continue to watch our family and friends displaced from their homes. It's just that that simple and, and that, that stark of a problem. Um, and so it's a matter of raising the revenue. And I think, you know, there's four main ways to do that. Number one, we have to get the state and federal government to step in and start funding the production of affordable housing in cities again. Um, I, I think we can link up with cities all over the country that are facing a very similar situation and, and, and force the will of Congress, and, you know, both at the state and, and, and federal level to do that. Uh, we need regular housing bonds on the ballot. We uh, won the $310 million housing bond this year. That was fantastic. We need one every year. Uh, Hello, and thank you for listening to Women's Magazine. This is Global Val. Happy Friday. It's March 18th. You've just been listening to last week's podcast of Women's Magazine with Global Val, where I interviewed three w- women who are running for supervisor of sis- uh, in their respective districts of San Francisco. Sandra Fewer, District 1, Hillary Ronan, District 9, and Kim Alvarenga for District 11. Check out what they're talking about. And if you want to hear the rest of the show, go on there to uh, pcrcollective.org. It's our active site for Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm is getting a new website, um, but our new shows aren't up there yet. So go on to the original site, pcrcollective.org, and you can still find all our podcasts. Welcome.
time has come to push the button. World, the time has come to push the button. World, the time has come to push the button. World, my finger is on the button. My finger is on the button. My finger is on the button. Push the button. You're listening to Women's Magazine. I'm Global Val here at Mutiny Radio. Thanks for joining me. And I've got my hands on the buttons here, but of course that's a a little music from the Chemical Brothers uh, as we uh, roll into this spring season we're in. You know, I was cruising around in the mission this afternoon looking for a place to park, and uh, I got one, finally. So I'm a little bit late for my show today, but I was thinking about, you know, driving and and the freedom that that you have with driving. And... and, uh, I want to connect that to a kind of a big event, big thing that took place just in the past week here. Um, there is a, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, women can't drive. They're not allowed. It's a Muslim clerics have said women cannot drive. And it's interesting. I actually work with a lot of Saudis um, in, in an educational capacity. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I step back. I, I don't uh, try to impose too much, uh, you know, cultural uh, mm, questioning upon them, of course, as a professional. But, you know, sometimes things come up and, and other people will ask them questions. And I remember uh, somebody asked one of the Saudi guys, well, why, why can't women drive in Saudi Arabia? And he kind of very kind of shyly and politely said, well, you know, if women drove, there'd be a lot more traffic. I'm just going to let that one settle. So, um, yeah, a lot more traffic. You know, that's that's the reason. Or, and I've had, I've had Saudi women say, well, it would just be too dangerous. And uh, and to which I I've said to myself, well, yeah, sure, it's 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 dangerous because uh, there's a lot of uh, there's there's this there's this thing that they do in Saudi Arabia called drifting, where basically they're just like cruising down the, the freeway at really top speeds and changing lanes really quickly and making it a very unsafe situation. So yeah, I believe that, uh, it is not safe, um, to drive in Saudi Arabia, but it is a law against women driving. Um, there's actually a group on Facebook, um, called Saudi women to drive, um, and they're, they're actually going to be establishing an NGO in New York um, so that they can bring more awareness. So it's hashtag women to drive. That's the number two. Um, Saudi women to drive. And, uh, you know, as I enjoy my freedoms here as an American, as a San Franciscan, um, I'd, like, I'd like to uh, extend that uh, notion of freedom across the world for everybody, especially women. And this is Women's History Month here in the United States. History, history, however you want to look at it. And, um, and, and some women in Saudi Arabia made history just this past week. Um, incidentally, they were not Saudi women. They were uh, female airline pilots from Brunei. And Brunei is uh, in the South China Sea. Um, it's actually, a, it's actually a, it's the official um, religion of Brunei is Islam, and um, and it's. I want to I want to tell you what the t- the the full name of the of the country of Brunei is. Um, it's called Nation of Brunei, the Abode of Peace. Very interesting. So um, there are all these uh, there there are lots of programs in Brunei to try to give women and and men, boys and girls, opportunities uh, to you know opportunities in life. And one of them is uh, a, 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 a programs through the airline industry where uh, they can learn how to be um, aeronautical engineers and pilots. And so this was Royal Brunei Airlines' first 
all female pilot crew. Um, and it was, it was their first flight, just all together, three female pilots and they flew to Saudi Arabia. So I've, uh, it was a very interesting, uh, it was a very interesting message being sent from one uh, Islamic country to another, um, saying, well, here are the women that we've, um, you know, that have had opportunities in our country, and now they're successful uh, jet airline airliner pilots, and uh, they can fly a plane, just just women pilots, uh, and land in 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 your country, Saudi Arabia, um, where you don't even allow women to drive. And so, uh, cheers and kudos to Brunei, uh, to Royal Brunei Airlines, and uh, and let's support the Saudi women to drive, and uh, maybe they'll see that uh, there won't be quite so much traffic after all, uh, and the streets might even get safer, um, because uh, drifting is obviously a dangerous situation. So. Happy Women's Month, everybody. Uh, I'm going to play a little more music for you, and I'll be right back in a few minutes. I'm going to be doing a series this month reading from a book called Extraordinary Women, Women Who Changed History. And uh, to just we're going to highlight some women in history because often when you talk to people and you ask people about, oh, who are some important women in, your, in history, you know, from your country or from anywhere else, um, it's often quite challenging for people to call up different names uh, because we don't learn about women in history so much. And so uh, it's, it's going to be a history lesson kind of month, folks. So thanks for joining me. I'm Global Val. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. listening to Women's Magazine. It's March, which means it's Women's Month, and women are awesome. You know women's bodies keep keep the clock of the world? Think about it. Here's part of the series for March, reading excerpts from a book called Women Who Changed History, Extraordinary Women, and it is edited by Catherine M. Edmondson. And it's, it's, uh, it's international, but it's mostly focused on American women. So I'm just going to read you some of their profiles, and uh, we're going to learn together. All right, here we are. I'm going to start with Mary Lees, American activist, 1850 to 1933. Lees, a mother of four who was admitted to the Kansas Bar in 1886, was one of the most gifted orators of her day. 
A first-hand witness to the collapsing farm economy, she helped to lead the populist movement that challenged the two-party system in the prairie states. Her stump speeches attacking both Democrats and Republicans during the elections of 1890 became the stuff of legend. Hers was a remarkably effective appeal that helped the populace catapult to national prominence. Although she herself did not run for office, Lise was probably the first American woman to sway male voters to her cause in large numbers. So that's Mary Lise. And, and think about that. I mean, she died in 1933, and she was making uh, speeches during the elections of 1890. Women didn't have the right to vote in 1890. Uh, so Mary Lee, certainly a, a pioneer of uh, women's engagement in, in politics. And I do like to remind everyone, since we were listening earlier to the uh, podcast from last week, uh, for the, the three three of women uh, who are all mothers who are running for supervisor of San Francisco, I like to remind everybody that women have only had the right to vote since 1920. That's not even a hundred years. We're four years short of that. And really, I'm looking forward to a big celebration for the hundredth. And uh, we'll see what happens in the meantime. All right. Here is another feature from Extraordinary Women. Barbara Charlene Jordan, 1936 to 1996, American politician and educator. Best known for her eloquent speech advocating the impeachment of President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. Jordan was the first black student at Boston University Law School and the first black and first woman in the Texas Senate. She served on the House Judiciary Committee where she made her famous speech calling for, for Nixon's impeachment. And in 1978, Jordan left the House of Representatives to teach at the University of Texas at Austin. In 1979, she published her autobiography, Barbara Jordan, A Self-Portrait. She is known for her work on civil rights legislation and her commitment to the fight against racism and intolerance. Which, I'm sure if you're listening to the show, you know that we're in a, a, a new age here uh, where we're hearing a lot of racist and intolerant rhetoric. Um, so uh, so maybe you want to read up on Barbara Charlene Jordan on her, in her uh, autobiography, Barbara Jordan, A Self-Portrait. Here's another one for you. This one, she is this one, next woman, of, of course, is fairly well known, um, Margaret Mead. 1901 to 1978, American anthropologist. Mead is most widely known for her field research in the South Pacific, particularly in Bali, New Guinea, and Samoa. Her 1928 dissertation, Coming of Age in Samoa, is her most famous book. Others include Sex and Temperament in the Three Primitive Societies, and her memoirs, Blackberry Winter, written in 1972. Much of Mead's focus was on young people, and she studied child-rearing patterns in several cultures. She paid close attention to American social patterns as well, and on how they influence character, adolescence, and sexuality. The Museum of National History in New York hosts the annual Margaret Mead Festival of Anthropological Films in her memory. I was actually just speaking to someone the other day who had taken a vacation to Bali several years ago. And, uh, you know, was, you think Bali and these beautiful beaches and, uh, hey, let's go on a vacation. Uh, it's a destination for, you know, for people around the world to go to Bali. Um, but the woman I was talking to, and she's an American, um, and she's a black American, and she went there with some, you know, some friends, and they, they got a big villa to stay in. Pretty, pretty, you know, common vacation stuff. But in the villa, there were people there who were working there who were basically servants of the house and uh and and she was saying that she kind of felt a little bit disgusted by some of the the way that some of her friends that she was with were acting towards them just kind of taking them for granted and saying yeah get me this get me that and really just treating them like uh well like servants like 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 that was their only purpose in life um so she had a really hard time on that vacation but what she ended up doing is making friends with the servants of the house because she had young children with her young children with her and uh she didn't want her kids to to just walk up to somebody and and demand something of them and so um so she actually made a some close friendships with the servants in the house. She went as in the kitchen with them and cooking and she was doing laundry with them and, and actually became very close. And really that was her connection to that, 
to that particular trip, um, getting to know the people there, um, but also seeing that, you know, her, her point was you can't treat people like they're there to serve you. Um, everyone's a human being. And so uh, I'm sure Margaret Mead saw, um, well, I'm sure she saw a lot of that. She was, she was studying uh, child-rearing patterns in, in Bali and the South Pacific. Um, you know, it, and in many cultures, it, it takes a village. And, and uh, I was also reading recently about some uh, some cultures down in the Marquesas uh, in the South Pacific where uh, there were some travelers there. And um, they kept seeing all these, these children. And, and every time they saw the children, they were with a different mother or different people because everybody came together and all the children were loved and taken care of and they couldn't even tell whose child was who. Um, and, uh, you know, when we think about the way that American culture is, has become, it's very isolated and, and very, you know, fearful and, and, uh, you know, almost cagey. We're almost a cagey nation at this point. Um, so I hope that some of those, uh, unnecessary fear barriers can be broken down. Um, and let's just trust one another and let's trust women. So I'm going to read one more, uh, about one more woman here and then uh, play a little more music. And you should definitely stay tuned or come down and join us at 21st in Florida here in the Mission District uh, for the Common Thread Collective, which starts at 3 o'clock. I'll be here with Diamond Dave and all our friends, and uh, you're welcome to come on down, do what you need to do, play what you got to play, say what you have to say, read something, share your activism, and, uh, and we'll see where we go from here. Here's my final feature of today's women's magazine. Lucy Burns, 1879 to 1966, American suffragist. Together with the legendary activist, Alice Paul, Lucy Burns organized a massive women's suffrage parade on March 3rd, 1913 in Washington, DC. It was probably no coincidence that that was also the date on which Woodrow Wilson was to be inaugurated as president of the United States. When Wilson showed up at the Capitol, he found that his greeters had left to see the parade. The column of over 5,000 marchers demanding a constitutional amendment granting women the right to vote made quite a splash as they elbowed their way down crowded Pennsylvania Avenue. The amendment they sought was passed and ratified before Wilson left office. I hope that one gave you tingles like it gave, like it did for me. Um, and as as we stand on the on the brink of a, a new president elect coming into office, I won't say coming into power. I'll say coming into office because that's what it is uh, intended to be—a job. Um, Within the next few months, uh, let us remember that in our history, 5,000 women can march down Pennsylvania Avenue on the day of an inauguration. And so we've got a long ways to go to, to still uh, give women equality in the United States, um, access to health care being, being number one, um, also passing the, the Equal Rights Amendment, that has been uh, circulating through Congress since the 1970s to, to try to put that women are equal under the Constitution. Did you know that that's not actually written in there? Um, of course, there's been a lot of laws since then to, uh, to support women's rights. Um, but it's not actually in the Constitution. So the ERA could be passed. And also, in the International uh, Treaty on Women, CEDAW, C-E-D-A-W, um, to to uh, give women rights and and protection around the world has been ratified by uh, the majority of countries around the world, um, except the United States and Iran and our friend Somalia. So you kind of see the schoolyard pick going on there. Uh, we need to kind of wake up in this country. Um, you know, turn off the TV and, uh, and, and get together and, and start reading up on your history and talking to one another and reading up on your history and seeing what is possible. 
Thank you for joining me for this abbreviated show here on March 18th. I'm Global Val, and please stay tuned. We'll be uh, having the Common Thread Collective coming up next here today, Friday, March 18th. But also, I'll be continuing the series of highlighting women throughout history, throughout Hey, Women's History Month. It's March, everybody. It's spring. So let's find some fresh ground. Thanks for listening. I'm Global Val, and you're awesome. And remember, you might be a woman in Brunei. You might be a woman in Saudi Arabia who wants to drive. You might be a girl who wants to go to school and become something radical. So remember, just when you think your aspirations are outrageous, that inspiration is contagious. Peace and thank you.